Well, good afternoon, church. We're going to go ahead and begin. So get comfortable in your seats, eating your snacks that I'm envious of because I've got my snack at home. But you know what? We're not to complain as Christians, so I will be silent on my lack of snackage. So we're going to continue in our history lessons. Uh, And as a reminder, too, because someone mentioned to me that they have uh, hated missing and they didn't realize that the history lessons were actually recorded online. So as a reminder for anyone who needs to catch up, Everything that's done uh, at corporate worship and for uh, Bible studies are recorded, and you can find them on our website or go to sermonaudio.com and look up the church name, and you'll find it all. So by way of reminder, you can catch up that way. So let's go ahead and pray. And today, as Joshua mentioned, we're going to be delving in to the development of the papacy. We're still in the medieval era, which again is a thousand years of church history, and the development of the rise of the pope. It's a significant thing in history and still has significance today because of the power that the Pope has over almost a billion professing Roman Catholic Christians. So what is the Pope? How did the Pope become to be? Uh, There's a lot to it. So we're going to uncover that today. So let's go ahead and pray, ask for God's blessing, and we'll dive in. Father God, we are grateful that you love us. Thank you for the opportunity to be on this beautiful Lord's Day here together. I ask that you give us ears to hear and eyes to see Uh, patterns of your providence, your power, as we look and observe and study history. In particular, as we look at the medieval era, a thousand years of you reigning in heaven over the world since your ascension, uh, there's a lot there. And today we're going to be looking at the papacy, and I ask you to help us to see uh, the good and the bad and the ugly in church history so we might learn that we might be guarded against future heirs, and that we would also seek reform where there needs to be reform, but also that we can praise you for the good things that were brought during challenging times or even with people who held offices that ought not to have been. I ask you bless this for your namesake and glory, because great are your works, as the psalm says, and all who love you study them. So help us to study your works in history with the development of the papacy here today. It's your name that we pray. Amen. All right, so the development of the papacy, which papacy is just the name for the seat of the pope. And as we talk about the pope, we're specifically referring to the bishop of Rome. Now, in our Baptist circles, reform circles, we don't use the term bishop very often. So by way of reminder, bishop is found in scripture. It's the term for elders, the term for overseer. But in the course of church history, especially about 200 years out of the gate from Christ's resurrection, the office of uh, one bishop over a group of pastors started to develop. As the church started growing in terms of organization, naturally they're just tend to, the churches tended to organize around one major pastor over pastors over a region to provide accountability, shepherding, carried, and that evolved and grew over time. That was a historic practice pretty pretty much out of the gate in church history. Uh, you can call it Episcopalian in the terms of the church structure. If you ever heard the term Episcopalian, it comes from episcopus, which means bishop, bishopry. Uh, that's a part of church history. So as I say bishop, we're talking about the pastor of pastors over a region or city. And as a reminder, there were, there were five major cities in this ancient and medieval era. You had obviously Rome, you had Jerusalem, you had Antioch and Alexandria that we've talked way back when. Uh, And then also you had one in Constantinople, which was the capital of New Rome, 
with Constantine that we've talked about in the last several weeks. So you had in these major cities, major metropolitan eras, one main pastor over the other pastors who served the flock of God. Well, when we talk about the Pope, we're specifically referring to the bishop that resided in Rome. And just as a reminder for those who don't know, the word, the term Pope comes from Latin, which literally means Papa. Well, when you say Papa, what is, comes to your mind? Daddy, Father. And it was the term used early on in church history by Christians to refer to pastors in general uh, because of in the New Testament, Titus and Timothy and other places where it talks about my son in the faith, I'm like a father to you in the faith. It became a term of endearment to show that this is a, a, like a father figure that, that, that guides me in the faith, protects me in the faith. And so that was a term that Christians weren't afraid of. But over the course of time, that term became more prominent and had a specific meaning in Western Latin-speaking churches referring to the Bishop of Rome that we are going to call the Pope. So just be mindful of that. So what caused the Pope to become what it is today, super powerful? What made it to be the religious juggernaut that it is? Well, that's today's lesson, isn't it? Uh, and unfortunately, like we've talked about before, and we've laughed and lamented, church history or any history is never neat. Uh, I can't just give easy bullet points, although I'm going to bullet point things, because history is long, it's complicated, it's convoluted. Uh, and yet again, I'm going to be spending uh, an hour covering another thousand years of development. The rise of the papacy really is a thousand year development to kind of get to where you have the zenith of the power of the papacy. Uh, the power of the Pope really came on the scene in the 400s and reaches a zenith in the 1300s, so almost a thousand years of development, and I'm going to try and cram in an hour. So I'll do my best, like I've said before. So, to boil it down, there were three major reasons that I believe that papacy became the religious juggernaut of Western civilization, that it became the seat and identifier of the Western Latin-speaking churches that it was. Uh, there are three reasons. First was political, second was prestige, and then third was persuasion. So we have political, prestige, and persuasion. So the first major reason was political. And there's a lot that I'm going to be explaining, assuming that you guys have been tracking along. And so if anything is confusing, you can ask questions after the fact or go back and listen to previous lessons. So I'm not going to do a lot of reclarifying. So just hang in there. So first, political. After the fall of Rome in 476 AD that we've talked about, remember, Western Europe lacked a central government. It was kind of a chaos. It was a no-man's land for a long time. And so the people of Western Europe, in particular the Christians that were now the predominant religious group in the West, was looking for some type of leadership to unite her once again. The Bishop of Rome ended up being the most natural place to look because... The Bishop of Rome was the main bishop of the Western regions of Europe. It was the main pastor of pastors from the ancient capital of Rome. So who best naturally to look to than a person who was second in power at that time only to the Caesars? But now there's no more Caesars. The Caesars deposed. So naturally, who do you look to? The next major power figure in their minds, and that was the Bishop of Rome, the Pope. In addition... The Germanic tribes that overthrew Rome were Christians. We talked about that. They started off Aryan Christians, converted later to Orthodox Christianity, but I'm not getting into all the details. 
but they were Christian and they were increasingly becoming more converted to Christianity after fall, the fall of Rome. And in so doing, the Germanic tribes naturally ascribed honor to the Bishop of Rome because they saw the Bishop of Rome as the leader of the church. It, remember, the Germanic tribes, the Thor-type worshipers that they were, wanted strong leadership. And they saw who is the manly man? Well, that's the Pope the ancient capital of civilization. So you had the Germanic tribes, who were the most powerful and most influential constituents in post-fall Rome, relegating leadership to the Pope. So after the Germanic tribes overthrew Rome, they held the political power of Rome, but they didn't really want to rule Rome. And so the Germanic leaders left over the course of time leadership over Rome in terms of its infrastructure, its politics, to the Pope. And in addition to the political deference in the West, the political power of the Pope continued to increase actually from the East because of an emperor named Justinian. The emperor Justinian in the East, in Constantinople, uh, had struggled for a while to provide cohesion to the Byzantine Empire. Remember, Byzantine Empire is substitute for Roman Empire. It was just now in the east as the main focal political point as opposed to the west. So Emperor Justinian struggled to maintain unity within the empire, especially in the west because of its crumbled nature. And in the struggle, he became convinced that religious unity was the best glue to keep the empire together. So by an act of legal decree, imperial decree, Justinian ordered all ecclesiastical edicts to be under civil law. Fancy term, ecclesiastical edicts. Basically, whatever now the Pope says has the power of the sword behind it. Or basically, the Pope says it, and it will be enforced by law. And during his reign, Justinian also made another proclamation saying that he believed that the Pope in the West was chief among all the bishops of all the church over all the world, with the patriarch or Pope of Constantinople being second only to the Bishop of Rome. So now we can date by legislative decree from Justinian Political power legally granted to the Bishop of Rome over the church by the 6th century. So that's the first thing to know is that political power was slowly granted by the Germanic tribes to the city of Rome, to the Pope. You have Emperor Justinian making a force of law to support papal edicts of the Pope. And then from there you had increasing power of the Pope exercise in the West. Now, from about the 500s to 700s, the papacy was generally submitted to the Eastern Emperor. Not perfectly, but generally. All papal appointments in Rome still had to be required, excuse me, still had to be approved of by the Emperor in the East. But in the course of time, this would change, especially in the 800s. On Christmas Day in the year 800, in particular, when Pope Leo III crowned Charles Martel also known in history as Charlemagne, as the new Holy Roman Emperor of the East, excuse me, of the West. And so now we have a gradual shift in political power where popes are ordaining kings and emperors in the West. Again, 
A lot more can be said. I'm giving you the bullet points. So the first major reason of the rise of the papacy was because of political powers. Secondly was prestige, and this one will go by fast. Uh, most of the early, early popes that lived in Rome came from arist- the aristocracy or the wealthy Roman families, and they had superb Roman education. So coming from the wealthiest Roman families, having the best education of people, it made it easy for them to have the seat of the papacy because they could buy the seat, or people thought, well, you're wealthy, you should have the seat, or you know more than us, you deserve the seat. For all those reasons combined, their education and their wealth made it easier for them to acquire the office, and because of their education, because of their wealth, they were able to more easily assert their authority in the church, in political matters, over the course of time. And then finally, the third reason that the papacy became the religious powerhouse that it was was because of persuasion. The early popes had the theological persuasion that Jesus established Peter as the head of the church, and they believed that Peter was the first major bishop of Rome, and therefore all his successors after him carry equal authority. And their text to justify the position is found in Matthew 16, verses 18 through 19. In context, Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And Peter stands up and makes the confession, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus says in verse 18, and I tell you, speaking to Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is the primary text that Roman Catholics will use to support their defense of one key leader over the whole church of God, that Jesus says to Peter, you are Peter, which means rock in Greek, and on this rock I will build my church, and gives Peter keys of binding and loosing, which keys lock things in and out. So the power of salvation and of the church in the world rests ultimately in one major figure, which is a Peter figure. And so, therefore, over the course of time, they were persuaded that this is how Jesus Christ establishes the kingdom of God on earth. Through his church, through the means of the gospel being preached, through the sacraments being administered, overseen by one major individual to oversee it all, and that was the successors of Peter or the bishops of Rome. Now, it is pure speculation whether Peter I was a bishop of Rome. History is inconclusive on that. Roman Catholic apologists will argue otherwise, but the evidence is inconclusive that Peter ever, ever was a bishop of Rome. Uh, it is pretty clear that Peter most likely, there's debate, but most likely died as a martyr in Rome, like Paul did. But that's all we know about Peter in Rome. Pure speculation, whether he was an actual bishop. But regardless, the emphasis of that text, we have to ask is, is, Peter, is Jesus talking to Peter as the rock? Or Peter's confession of faith as the rock upon which Jesus built his church. And we as Protestants say Jesus was referring to Peter's confession. And that confession is the rock upon which the gates of hell can't withstand. Because Jesus is the son of the living God. And the power of salvation rests not in just one person, but 
all the apostles and from the apostles, all the church, as we hold the gospel, which is the news of Christ, and Christ holds the keys of death and hell, which we see in Revelation. But again, I'm not going to go into that more because this is history class, not apologetics. But if you have questions, let me know. So theological persuasion made these popes believe that they had divine mandate for their position. And not only did they have the theological persuasion, they also had the confidence to act as if this was their authority. So if you have a man who believes something firmly to the death, that is a very powerful man to contend with. Right or wrong, if a man is convinced and has the confidence to act on it, that is a man that will get stuff done. And it's also a man that people will defer to, right? So, with all those reasons combined, the papacy became what it was. And the full and final codification of papal supremacy eventually comes in the 1800s, in 1876, with a council called Vatican I, the first council that met in the Vatican in Italy. And so we're centuries ahead now. But in Vatican I, in 1876... We get the codification of what we all know as papal infallibility. Raise your hand if you've heard of that before. Where Roman Catholics believe that the Pope, in some sense, is infallible about the Christian life. And so let me read to you where Roman Catholics officially dogmatize papal infallibility. And this is the very last paragraph of the whole confession. It says, We teach and define as a divinely revealed dogma that when the Roman pontiff speaks ex cathedra, that is, when in the exercise of his office as shepherd and teacher of all Christians, in virtue of his supreme apostolic authority, he defines a doctrine concerning faith or morals to be held by the whole church, that he possesses by the divine assistance promised to him in blessed Peter, that infallibility which the divine redeemer willed his church to enjoy in defining doctrine concerning faith or morals. Therefore, such definitions of the Roman pontiff are of themselves and not by the consent of the church, irreformable. And then the last line of this confession says, So then should anyone, which God forbid, have the temerity to reject this definition of ours, let him be anathema, damned, cursed of God. So if you don't believe the Pope has infallibility when speaking about Christian doctrine, you go to hell. Theology matters, church. So this lesson is my attempt to show you how Roman Catholics got here. Again, a thousand years crammed into now 40-some minutes. We're going to hop into our DeLorean again, going at the 1.21 gigawatt speed. So strap in. You can go back and listen. I'm going to do my best. But the way we're going to do that is we're going to see the development of the papacy and this power of this persuasion of this prestige that we talked about. We're going to see the development of those three themes lived out in the lives of the four most prominent popes of the medieval era that define what the papacy would become. And those guys were Pope Leo, Pope Gregory the Great, Pope Gregory the Seventh, also known as Hildebrand because Hildebrand was his real name. And then finally, Pope Innocent III. So Leo, 
Gregory, Hildebrand, and Innocent. And from these lives, we'll see the three factors of politics, prestige, and persuasion at play to make the papacy what it is in the Roman Catholic eye. So let's dive in. First is looking at Pope Leo, who was in the, 500, who was in the 5th century. He was the pope from 440 to 461 AD, and he is the first notable pope in history. There were many popes before him, but he is called also Pope Leo the Great for a reason, because he was the great rescuer of the city of Rome that we're going to talk about. He actually rescued Rome twice from complete annihilation. Interesting to note about Leo is in his uh, pontiff, in his papacy, he assumed the title the Latin title Pontificus Maximus, which is the old heathen title for high priest, believing that since Christianity has conquered over pagan Rome, he assumed the old title and mockery for himself as the high priest of the Christian religion. So if you hear the word pontiff, or if you hear Pontificus Maximus, it's referring to the Pope and his office as the supreme leader. Now, Leo was a great guardian of orthodoxy. How many of you remember the Council of Chalcedon that we've talked about? Remember, learned that. Council of Chalcedon was called because of Pope Leo. He was a great ardent defender of orthodox Christianity. He was a great defender of Nicaea, of the divinity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, of the fullness of the Trinity. And he cared for spiritual fidelity amongst Christians. And so he was the first to call the Council of Chalcedon together to defend the nature of Christ and the hypostatic union which as a reminder, all that means is that Jesus as an individual, as a person, is one person with two natures, truly God, truly man. But beyond his scriptural fidelity, at least in his mind, he was also the great rescue of Rome. As I mentioned before, Leo paved the way for the papacy to be even more meteoric and more juggernaut because he was the rescuer, the redeemer of the city of Rome twice during his papacy. He rescued Rome first from Attila the Hun in 452 AD. How many of you know Attila? Do you remember Attila from a few weeks ago? Pop quiz, yes. Remember, Attila the Hun was the great Mongolian conqueror, the great threat of Western civilization because he got all the way into Italy. The Germanic tribes feared him, and they were the Thor warrior figures. They sought refuge from Attila by the Roman Empire, and that eventually caused the issues of Rome falling, if you remember from previous lessons. But Attila the Hun set his eyes on toppling Rome. Because if he could topple Rome, then he conquers the world. So he was vigilant to go all throughout Asia with his eyes set on Rome. His nickname, by the way, was the Scourge of God because he would devour cities. He would burn men, women, and children. He would burn the leaders. He would raise the city to the ground, catch it on fire, all for his great accolade. Well, he was greatly feared. Even the Germanic warrior, warlike people feared him. And eventually, Attila himself and his forces go right up to the city gates of the ancient city of Rome. And guess who met Attila's forces head on? It wasn't the Roman Empire, and it wasn't the Avengers. It was Leo, a lone gray-haired old man on his walking stick hobbled up to the mighty Hun, the scourge of God. Humble yet heroic and meek yet mighty to intercede on behalf of Rome and Western civilization. 
Now, Leo is considered a moral and spiritual giant of his time. Everyone spoke tightly of him, even until their hun, after the fact. And Leo strived to model his ministry in the steps of Christ. He believed that in his ministry as a bishop, that he could win men's hearts through meekness and sacrifice, and he firmly believed that he could defeat Attila through meekness and spare Rome in Western Christianity. So, as history records, Leo kneeled under the gaze of the world's tyrant and spoke these words. O Attila, the people of Rome, once conquerors of the world, now kneel conquered before you. We pray for mercy and deliverance. O Attila, you could have no greater glory than to see suppliant at your feet this people before whom once all the peoples of the world lay suppliant. You have subdued, O Attila, the whole circle of the lands granted to the Romans. Now we pray that you, who have conquered others, would conquer yourself. The people have felt your scourge. Now they would feel your mercy. And according to legend, Attila by his own account, saw two giants flanking Leo up in heaven, Peter and Paul wielding flaming swords. And up in heaven, he also saw a rank of 10,000 angels wielding fiery swords. Again, that's legend. <clears throat> but it is kind of cool and very Marvel-like. And Attila was pierced to the heart by Leo's boldness and meekness. And so he decided to spare Rome from complete destruction. Although he did allow it to be ransacked and plundered. That was the first rescue mission of Leo. And then Leo again, later on, about 30 years later, saved Rome again from another invader, King Gesseric in 455. King Gesseric was a fearsome vandal warlord who set sail with 100 ships to overthrow Rome. Now, as a reminder, the Germanic tribes that overthrew Rome as we know it consisted of several tribes the vandals were one we get the word vandalism for the kinds of acts they did so the vandals were one of those tribes the king the major warlord wanted to overtake rome to destroy it and own it for itself and news of the vandal invasion had struck panic among the citizens of rome the soldiers themselves were so fearful these are roman soldiers right the mightiest army in the world they mutinied they fled and deserted they went mia Citizens fled in panic, and the Emperor Maximus did not know what to do, and he was so cowardly that he was assassinated out of, out of pure frustration by his own bodyguard, and his dead body was dragged through the streets and torn in pieces. But, once again, when King Gesseric approached the gates of Rome, Pope Leo, feeble old man that he was, approached him, his destructive foe of the ancient gates, and interceded a second time in humility before his adversary for mercy. Moved by Leo, King Gesseric spared Rome to burn to ashes, although he did allow his army to plunder Rome for a whole week. And it's interesting to note, because history has amazing little factoids, when Rome invaded Jerusalem in 70 AD, which we've talked about, Rome destroyed and decimated Jerusalem. Rome plundered almost all of the Jews' gold, and in particular, plundered almost all the gold in the temple of God. And they held it in monuments, and they held it in their treasury. Well, now in a stunning act of historical irony, 
The ones who plundered the great temple of God were now themselves plundered by these raiding forces, and all of that gold from the temple was stolen, and now many of it lost to history. Fascinating. Uh, in humility, to Leo's credit, he didn't, take, he didn't want any spotlight to himself. After Gesseric and his forces left, he called the Christians in Rome to have a day of prayer, and he turned the citizens' attention to Christ for deliverance, and it's quoted that he said, let us ascribe our liberation to the ineffable mercy of the Almighty. So Leo was a pretty rockin' man. Like, he was a pretty bold, decently orthodox individual. But he also held belief in Matthew 16, in papal premacy, the supremacy of the Pope over all the other bishops of Rome. And he was the first prominent pope to teach this concept from his office and apply it. This argument states that every successor of Peter as the bishop of Rome possesses the full authority of Peter on behalf of Christ in the church. And again, Leo argued papal premacy from scripture, not from tradition that had developed. So in Leo's mind, he argued since Christ promises this in Scripture, and since Christ commanded it, it comes from the Word of God, not from tradition. Therefore, uh, no man can argue against it or fight it. The position is invaluable. So, the first pope, major pope in the medieval era, uh, saved the West twice. Uh, and that gave the papacy greater clout in the eyes of all Western churches. Now, a reminder about the ancient world. Remember, we talked about the medieval age is in the middle between two ages. Well, the ancient world has influenced the medieval era. And one of those was they believed, the ancients believed the world existed in hierarchy. That the cosmos and the heavens have an order that earth reflects. And so, in the ancient world, it was natural to have established authority among men. And in particular, it was, it was natural to have one main leader. You had emperors, you had kings, you had the main deity that you submitted to, you had a high priest. It was natural for them then to think that therefore there ought to be one major leader amongst Christians. And so it was very easy for them to naturally believe that because of their cultural milieu. Then you have claims from the papacy in the West that, that his authority is biblical. And then you have this heroic rescue of Rome. And then you have these German Thor warrior figures converting to Christianity, looking to this awesome warrior pope who defeats tyrants by sheer meekness. And awe and wonder begin to captivate Western Christians for this particular man in office. Hence the rise and development of the power and establishment of the papacy. So Leo's prestige and theological persuasion was the first major development towards an all-powerful, infallible papacy. But we move on. Pope Gregor the Great, we're going to go over into our DeLorean and about 100 years later, and he was pope from 590 to 604 AD. The next major development comes with him. He's called great for many reasons, uh, but most of it is because of his character as well as his theological persuasions yet again. Gregor the Great was the pope at the end of the 6th century, and if you remember only one thing about Gregory, it needs to be this, is that Gregory the Great shaped the papacy for what it would be for the next 1,000 years. 
He shaped what the papacy would be for the medieval era. Roman Catholics consider Gregory to be among the chief Latin fathers of the early church. They put him up there next to Augustine, Ambrose, and Jerome as the premier Latin fathers. So he is the first prominent pope after the fall of Rome. Like I mentioned before, absent a central political leader in the West, Christians increasingly looked to the pope for leadership. They had already esteemed the bishop of Rome for centuries, but since Pope Leo's deliverance of Rome, a renewed reverence and acceptance of the pope's position in the Western churches escalated. Now, as a man, Gregory was great. He was a very upright, moral, pure man in terms of his character, and everyone admired him. Everyone admired him. Prior to being the pope, Gregory actually served as the mayor of Rome for a period of time. He was born in an aristocratic family, meaning that he was very wealthy. He had received a rich education, and he possessed adept managerial skills because his family owned thousands of acres of Italian real estate. So managing Italian real estate, having a career stint as the mayor of Rome, gave him great skill and knowledge of Rome, the outlying lands, to manage problems and things, and that influenced how he would later rule as the Pope. So he utilized his skills as his time as mayor, his family's estate, and he was well adept in economy, welfare, city planning. And by the time Gregory became Pope, the church at Rome had accumulated over 1,800 miles of land. This was the church of Rome. They owned 1,800 square miles of land. This was due to the gradual gifting of land by the faithful citizens of the time over the course of centuries. And in managing the estate, Gregory made that land fruitful. From the estate, Gregory was able to feed much of the Romans' citizens' poor population. From the estate, he was able to collect taxes to benefit the city and help the economy. And eventually... The papacy slowly took over more and more of the management of the city of Rome. Because remember, the Germans who took it over deferred to the Pope. So the Pope now actually acted as a prime minister of that region. He collected taxes. He distributed welfare. He did the aqueduct repairs and other infrastructure repairs. They concluded peace treaties. And he helped boost the military defense. So you name it, the Pope led it with Gregory the Great. And as Pope, Gregory defended Italy as the commander general against several invasions from a Germanic tribe called the Lombard tribe. He successfully repelled several attacks from the Lombard tribe and twice concluded peace with Lombard leaders. So needless to say, like Leo, Gregory's fame skyrocketed in the West, and undoubtedly his resume was quite impressive. But as to Gregory's spiritual life and character, he was truly great indeed. He was a devout and pious man by all who knew him. Gregory himself preferred a monastic life over the public eye. He actually went to a monastery to become a monk after he retired as mayor and only became pope reluctantly after massive pressure from political and ecclesiastical figures. They basically said, there's no one we want to lead the church but you. And so he felt it was, it was his duty to lead the Church of God in the West. Gregory had established several monasteries prior. He wanted Christians to have a very rich inner spiritual life. So he accepted this role reluctantly, but 
Upon his inauguration, he created a new title for the Pope called the Servant of Servants, believing that the head of the church ought to be the greatest servant of all in the spirit of Christ, which, amen, obviously, all pastors should be that way. So Gregory was a man who had a lot of things right. He was very influential. Uh, He viewed the papacy as the chief servant for the whole church, which was a fairer and truer view of the role than many other future popes would hold, which we'll (laughs) learn about here in a little bit. Uh, Gregory also shaped what the papacy would be in the medieval ages. His legacy was great, like I mentioned before. He was an exemplary Christian man, and he inspired many future popes to follow in his example of scriptural fidelity and piousness. However, most would not embrace his pious life, uh, as history records. Gregory had maintained a strict orthodoxy in his papacy. He defended the early councils. He condemned thunderously any who would veer from Orthodox Christianity and excommunicate them. He was also a devoted student of Scripture. We laugh because we think Roman Catholics don't know their Bibles. They often did for a lot of their history, and a lot of the early popes did love the Scriptures and encouraged the early faithfuls to believe it and to know it. He encouraged all Christians to memorize the Latin Scriptures as they were able. And during his papacy, he encouraged Christians everywhere to read the Bible as much as they could. He even once warned his own doctor not to be dominated by his secular affairs so that he, quote, neglected the daily words of his Redeemer. And once... Before becoming bishop, he had actually had refused ordination as a bishop due to his, quote, own ignorance of the Psalms. I can't be pope. Oh, Gregory, why can't I be pope? I <laughs> don't know the Psalms well. That was his M.O. Gregory was truly great in his character. Uh, he's also greatly known for his book on pastoral care that influenced a lot of the shepherding guide for pastors during the medieval ages. Uh, he, st- he stressed the necessity of an inner life to serve the church in humility, Christ-likeness, and purity, to not be absorbed in the externals so that you neglected the internal care of the soul, which unfortunately became the pitfall of many priests in the West over the course of time. Here's a quote from his book, Pastoral Care. Our Lord continued in prayer on the mountain but wrought miracles in the cities, showing to all pastors that while aspiring to the highest, They should mingle in sympathy with the necessities of the infirm. The more kindly charity descends to the lowest, the more vigorously it reaches to the highest. Gregory was also influential because he was highly Augustinian. Augustine greatly influenced the theology of Western churches. And as we know, we're Augustinian in our theology as Reformed individuals. He held to Augustinian theology overall and Rome in the West held overall to Augustinian theology because of the ardency of Gregory, although he did compromise certain areas of Augustinian theology, he believed that Adam's sin gave us guilt, but man could cooperate on his own with the grace of God, which is what eventually led to the system of uh, synergism, of cooperative grace in Roman Catholic theology. The idea of penance also came from Gregory. Gregory stressed in his papacy that sins after baptism needed to be forgiven by penance. And this laid the foundation for further Roman Catholic theology of merits that we'll talk about in a few weeks. Basically, the more we sin, the more we need to repay them because God deserves to be repaid all the injustice that we do to his name. Grace forgives, but we still have to repay. So by grace, through the sacraments, we can, but we must. And in light of that, he believed that the saints that have departed and also their holy relics could aid us 
in this area of penance. So the idea in the West of revering saints, praying to saints, looking at relics of saints that have gone before began with Gregory. He held a strange fascination of these powers and relics, but he believed that they could help the church fight against sin, that the saints could intercede to Jesus on our behalf and help us overcome time of sufferings and trial. And he held two saints and the powers of relics so much that he made them central to Christian piety. Centuries before Christians in the West had revered saints, they held awe to certain relics, But Gregory made it essential to Christian practice, which is why Roman Catholics are decked out in all their stuff that they have today, why they have their daily devotionals about saints, comes from Gregory. He once said, Behold, the severe judge Jesus Christ is about to come, but take heart, our holy martyrs are ready to be your advocates. That's Pope Gregory the Great. That set the tone for future Roman Catholic teaching on merits, intercession of saints, and other theology issues that we won't get into right now. Also, Gregory was the first to really solidify the Roman Catholic doctrine of the Mass. He taught that the body and blood were really present in the Eucharist, framing the foundation of transubstantiation in the West. Uh, Though he framed it, it would not be the full accepted position of all Western churches until later on that we'll talk about in several lessons. But Gregory also taught that the Mass was sacrificial to atone for sin. The early church wasn't always clear in what they believed communion did or was. But with Gregory, for Latin-speaking churches in the West, Gregory taught that the Mass was sacrificial to actually forgive sin. When you eat the bread and the wine, you're eating Jesus, and that sacrifice, that body and blood, can wash away your sins for the week and help you in your goal of being ready to see God. It started with Gregory. And it was a means of grace to forgive sin. He believed in the power of the Mass so much that he believed it actually had the power to heal diseases and even raise people from the dead. And he taught that from his office. This view of communion gained popularity because of Gregory, although, again, it was not the official position until much later on uh, in the 1200s. So Gregory, quote, was great in many ways in shaping the papacy. He was a great man. He was a great leader. He was a great planner, a great defender. He held to mere Orthodox Christianity, but he was the first to introduce the foundations of a lot of what Roman Catholics believe about the Mass, about the intercession of saints, about having holy relics to help you and aid you and guard you, and of many other things that we don't have time to talk about. So we talked about Pope Leo. We talked about Pope Gregory the Great. And then we're talking about another Gregory, Gregory the Seventh, also known as Hildebrand. Now, for the sake of your all sanity and mine, because clarity, not confusion, is best, I will no longer call him Pope Gregory the Seventh, And that's also a long title to say. I'm going to call him by a more cool name, Hildebrand. Uh, sounds like something from Final Fantasy, if you're a geek like me. But... Hildebrand was his real name, which, by the way, when you hear Pope Leo, Pope, though, though, these were not their actual real names. In assuming the office, they assumed a new name to represent something about their office. And oftentimes they would borrow a name from someone in church history, most often a previous pope, that they aspired to be like. 
So if you hear of Pope Leo the Ninth, it's because he, on his coronation day, wanted to follow the footsteps of Leo, or Innocent, or Gregory, and so forth. So Hildebrand was Gregory, Pope Gregory the Seventh, and he uh, was a pope during the 1000s. Literally, the year 1000 onward for a while was his papacy, and Hildebrand was the chief reformer of the Roman Catholic Church at this time. Now we laugh because we think, well. Roman Catholic, reforming, what is that? So what do I mean by reformer? He, in his day, saw a lot of the depths of depravity in the Roman Catholic Church. By this time, most of the clergy struggled with sexual impurity and immorality was rampant. You had lots of playboy stuff going on amongst most of the bishops, several of the popes, most of the priests, and Hildebrand was fed up with the state of immorality in the Roman Catholic Church. So he was a reformer in that regard. He fought for sexual purity among the clergy when it was at an all-time high. He also fought for the separation of church and state because over time the papacy, again, to make history lesson short, ended up becoming a puppet in the hands of the rich Roman aristocracy. Because again, the people who have the money the purse strings control a lot of the politics. And in the course of time, the papacy became sold to the highest bidder. There was a lot of bribery. There was a lot of political machinations back and forth in the dark. And that corrupted the church. Because obviously, as scripture says, if you take a bribe, it turns your eye to justice. So a lot of the popes were compromised for centuries because of the people who control the purse strings. They give them a little something-something on the side to control the politics, all of that. And Hildebrand had enough. Hildebrand believed, and rightly so, that the church and state were divine institutions, but they were separate. They were not to be intertwined. And so he wanted to reform the church, to purge the immorality, and make the papacy credible again in the eyes of the church, and wanted to make the church and state distinct. And so that's what he strived to do. He formed the papacy to be a more pure papacy for his time. And Hildebrand is important because his papacy formed what the papacy would be when Martin Luther comes on the scene. His mission was to revive the church from being independent of the state for its own spiritual purposes. And Hildebrand, if you can remember one thing about him, he is considered the greatest pope in history. The next guy, Innocent III, is considered the most powerful, but, but Hildebrand is considered the greatest because his claims of power and his execution of that power was unparalleled for his time. He purged the church of much immorality, and he contributed much to the Roman Catholic world at that time. Now, he wasn't a very tall or strong man. He was kind of pathetic to look at, but what he lacked in physical stature, he made up with a tenacious spirit. He didn't make a lot of unique claims uh, about his papacy like previous popes had, but what was unique was his self-assertion and the universal application he made from those claims and his resolution to implement them decisively. It was unprecedented. During his, during his papacy, Hildebrand made several claims. These are recorded in a piece of paper called Dictatus Papi, the Dictates of the Pope from 1075. And of those, these are the most significant. This comes from Hildebrand. First, the Roman Catholic Church is the only true church. Second, only the Pope can depose and reinstate other bishops. 
Third, all secular rulers must kiss the feet of the Pope in submission to merit eternal life. Fourth, the Pope may depose any king. And finally, the Roman Church has never and will never err, and the Pope of it cannot be judged by anyone. That was Hildebrand. Taking, from, taking his cue from predecessors in Scripture, he made these claims and he asserted them with an iron fist. And Hildebrand is famous for quoting the phrase, the church militant. How many of you have talked about that? Use that. It comes from him. He believed that the church's mission on earth was a life of victorious warfare, but warfare nonetheless. The saints in heaven are triumphant. The saints on earth are militant. But he reinvigorated the Western churches and their mission to spread the gospel. And he taught that the Christian life was a life of light versus dark, but the church will overcome because Jesus has promised the papacy to ensure that the gates of hell will not prevail against Christ's church, and that renewed this church and her missionary efforts. Hildebrand launched lots of missionary efforts to get the gospel out, and the Western churches for a time were revived with renewed character and made her very much, dare I say, post-millennial. And if you look at Roman Catholic teaching, they are very post-millennial in their views because of Hildebrand, that the church, over a course of time, is going to overtake the world comes from the idea of church militant that comes from Hildebrand. He considered, uh, in his theology, Hildebrand considered secular rulers as the chief dark lords of the world, and they need the light of the church, meaning the light of the pope, to save them. Now, this is opposite to the concept that we have talked about earlier uh, in other lessons past about sacred kingship, where in sacred kingship, The kings thought that was their role. The kings thought that the state had authority over the church. Hildebrand said, no, church has authority over the state. And obviously this idea of sacred kingship and church and state issue plagued all of medieval era. But again, to make history lesson short, we're going to move on. And I've spoken on it in the times past. So to Hildebrand, the church had authority over the state. And so the state needed to submit to the pope. Uh, His view, like I mentioned, infused a new missionary effort and confidence to his time. And he cleansed successfully a lot of the Roman Catholic Church at that time from sexual immorality. It was common even among popes. uh, If you can look it up, at one point it was so terrible, the immorality amongst popes, that there was a 200-year period known as the pornocracy because of the high immorality amongst the popes of Rome. Well, Hildebrand cleared house with the aid of Holy Roman Emperor Henry III. To quote President Donald Trump, they drained the swamp and got rid of a lot of (coughs) terrible guys uh, that were archbishops who were corrupt, priests who were corrupt. Uh, The papacy had turned into a madhouse by 1046, Uh, By 1046, there were actually three rival popes in Rome that the church didn't know who to submit to. So Henry III, using his authority as the Holy Roman Emperor at the time, called a synod to depose all three of those popes, instituted a new pope, Clement I, and this was the first move known in history as the papal cleansing, and from Clement came Hildebrand. And Hildebrand was among two other notable men in history, that sought to reform the church. The first was a guy named Peter de Masai. Peter de Masai is the one 
who is famous for self-flagellation as a means of spiritual practice. And so when we talk, like, you know, all the movies about Roman Catholics and the priests are whacking themselves nonsensely, uh, beating themselves to death, comes from this guy. He was one of the reformers. And then the other guy is a name that you should know, Cardinal Humbert. Remember him? The hot-headed, tempered cardinal that sparked the great schism between the East and the West. Those two guys and Hildebrand were the reformers of the, of the Roman Catholic Church in the 1000s. But they had passed strict laws about clerical celibacy. The reason that priests today do not marry comes from their reforms, believing that celibacy is superior to marriage and that it was greater to fight and resist sexual temptation than it was to be married. So that's why that practice is here today. Now, Hildebrand is famous for a controversy called the Investiture Controversy. The rise of papal power under Hildebrand is best illustrated here in this idea of investiture. Now, investiture doesn't mean investing money like real estate. Invest can mean to give authority, and that's what it's used here. This controversy was who appoints bishops in the church? Do kings, do emperors, or do popes? Well, every Christian believed that bishops were essential to the life and health of the church, so the appointments of bishops were important. But the question remained, who invested bishops with authority? Who was in charge in the church? Is it the church or the state? Well, King Henry IV upheld that it was kings. He saw it as his duty as the Christian emperor to appoint the bishops of his land. And these bishops gave uh, were given a ring and a staff from the noblemen as a sign of investment of authority, and that they bowed a knee and kissed the hand of the emperor or the nobleman to show their submission to the authority. Well, Hildebrand vehemently opposed that. To Hildebrand, that was anathema. God forbid. To him, only the church exclusively through the pope had the authority to appoint bishops. The bishop, he argued, was under the jurisdiction of the church, not the state, so therefore it must be the church with the approval of the pope, not kings or emperors that appoints bishops in the church. Hildebrand wielded his power as pope to force Henry into submission. At first, he was threatened with excommunication. When Henry refused, Hildebrand excommunicated him. And then he also made a proclamation that all of Henry's servants were set free from this heretic. In one papal stroke, Henry lost two-thirds of his army to this papal decree. And Henry's opponents seized the opportunity to take the throne, and Germany was a madhouse. It was on the brink of civil war, all because of this controversy started by Hildebrand. Now, after much counsel, Henry decided to repent and beg forgiveness for his sin. History notes that Henry traveled barefoot in snow and ice in one winter with his family to visit Hildebrand and his castle in a place called Casanova. And in Casanova, Henry wept and waited outside for three days to hear a response from Hildebrand. And Hildebrand was in a crisis of conscience. He believed that Henry wasn't truly repentant and would one day betray him. And to make history lesson short, that was true. King Henry, when he reclaimed his power, ended up banishing Hildebrand. Hildebrand died in exile. But although Hildebrand didn't want to forgive and pardon and reinstate Henry, it was his job as a bishop, as a man of God, as the Pope, to forgive anyone who came repentant. So reluctantly, Hildebrand received Henry back into the church forgave him for his sin, 
and was eventually betrayed. But this was the first time in church history that a pope deposed a king. The church wielded the kingdom, the keys of the kingdom of heaven to bind the sword of the kings of men. And this would not be the first time, but it would happen many times in the medieval era. It wouldn't be the last. So that was Hildebrand. With the remaining time, we'll look at the final major pope that influenced the papacy to what it is. And that's by a guy named Pope Innocent III. And he was the pope from 1198 to 1216. Now, Innocent, he is considered the most powerful pope in history. Why the most powerful? Because he wielded his power unlike any other pope ever had up until that point or since him. He took Hildebrand's claims of papal authority to unprecedented heights. First, Innocent was the first pope to claim the title of the Vicar of Christ. How many of you have heard of that before about the pope? The Vicar of Christ comes from Innocent III. In Latin, vicar means substitute. It's where we get our word vicarious from. For centuries, kings and emperors had used the title the Vicar of God for themselves because they believed that they were the representatives of God in the world with their secular power. Now, Innocent appropriated that to himself and the church, saying that he is a representative of Christ and the kingdom of God for all the world. From his power, Innocent III created what we know as the Inquisition, the great witch hunts of the medieval ages, comes from him because he wanted to purge Western Europe of all heresy and all dissenting groups. Many Reformation guys died from the Inquisition, which we'll get into in a few weeks when we talk about the Road Reformation. But moving on, he was a political mastermind, and he wielded power unlike any pope in history. He was ambitious. His overarching MO was to make the papacy as powerful as possible for the good of the kingdom of God. Right or wrong, that's what he believed, and that's how he executed his office. He exercised authority over the kingdoms of Europe in such, to such a degree that three times in his papacy, he deposed and brought down the three major kingdoms in Western Europe, to Germany, France, and England. First, let's look at Germany. Innocent launched the first mini-world war in Europe because of this issue. There were two rival claimants to the seat of the Holy Roman Empire at the time. Innocent sided with one guy named Otto on one condition. He would give papal support, and the Pope also had soldiers at this time, by the way. He would support with his army and also with ecclesiastical power if Otto would promise to give sovereignty back to the papal realms that were lost over time. Well, Otto promised this, but eventually he broke his promise, and in fury, Innocent excommunicated Otto. He was so furiated that he asked both the kings of France and England to overtake Otto because Germany was vulnerable. And that caused an international conflict, or the first kind of mini-world war at that time, all in the name of papal autonomy. Second time he deposed a king was in England, over with King John. This King John is the King John of Robin Hood, the brother of King Richard the Lionheart. This was the same King John. They clashed and butted heads because King John refused to accept Innocent's appointment of the Archbishop of Canterbury. John said, no, I, I'm the king. I have the right to appoint my own bishop over my people. Forget you. 
in fury and righteous indignation, innocent, threaten excommunication. John said, go ahead. And so in a display of papal power, he put all of England under an interdict. An interdict is just an authoritative prohibition. In effect, innocent told all the clergy in England, you are forbidden upon excommunication to do any church services. No sacraments, no last rites, no baptisms, no communion. For four years, England went without church services because King John refused. Well, eventually, King John changed his mind. He took Innocent's appointment. And in doing penance, he offered up all of England and Ireland as tribute to the Pope. And so for a period of time, England and Ireland were under the complete authority of the Pope of Rome. Moving on, the final display of power came again in France when King Philip Augustus was forced by Innocent to repent of his immorality with his first wife. On their wedding day, King Philip married this woman who was the sister of the King of Denmark At some point, a day or two after their marriage, he, quote, got an aversion from her and locked her away in a nunnery. It was her brother that came to Innocent's aid, said, please help my poor sister. And he thundered excommunication upon Philip, put all of France under an interdict and said, this will only be relieved unless you put away your second wife and remarry your first, which he did. He left his second wife for dead and remarried his first wife. But yet again... King Philip, along with King John, along with Otto, were deposed of their kingship by one pronouncement of excommunication from innocent. And so the greatest display of political power was seen with the Pope deposing kings. Three of the mightiest nations of Europe was deposed by him. So we see politics, prestige, persuasion. This led to the development of all the powerful popery that the medieval church was known for and the slow theological developments that led to what we read earlier with Vatican I. Again, these are the Cliff Notes version, a thousand years of Pope history in one, but I hope you see politics, prestige, persuasion, Leo, Gregory, Hildebrand, Innocent. These were the players that made the Western churches what they eventually became that made them decay and need the light of the Reformation that would come in the 1500s. Now, don't lose heart. It wasn't all bad. Don't forget, you still had Eastern churches in the, in the, you had churches in the East who were fairly sound, and you had men who did not bow the knee to the Pope. You had many reformers outside of the so-called reformers of the Popes with guys like John Huss. And... Tyndale and Wilcliffe, which we'll talk about in a few weeks. So we'll talk about them and see how there was still always a true faithful church amidst an eroding institutional church. But that's how the papacy became to be. And there's other cool factoids that I glossed over because, again, there's just too much to share. But if you want to know some of those factoids, talk to me afterward. So let's pray. Father God, thank you for this time. I pray that this lesson was enlightening for your people. 
that we might see the ideas, the players, the consequences of ideas that bring us to where we are in history. But it is by your design, you make no mistake in how you reign and rule. Jesus, you are saving the world through a myriad of ways, saving people, rising nations, tearing down nations, rising popes, deposing kings, all of this so that you set the chessboard for your full final reign in the world by which all men will bow the knee and confess that you are Lord one day. So you need that we pray. Amen. All right, so with that, is, are there any questions? What's next week? Next week is going to be a break. Joshua is going to, well, it's a break for me, but not a break from medieval ages. It will be the Crusades because the Crusades were launched by popes. <laughs> and so Joshua will be talking about that uh, next week. And then after that, we'll talk about medieval theology. Uh, what was the theology of the medieval ages? Uh, and then we will go into the road to Reformation. What were the things that led to the Reformation, the dissenting groups? Uh, so we're getting closer to Reformation time. I'll be there for a while. All right. Well, we are dismissed. Love you guys. Thank you, Jonathan. Yes.